Let's bow our heads in prayer, and we'll go to our Heavenly Father. Now, our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful, that it was our sins that held you there, that you chose to allow those sins to become uh, in your own body, and that you availed yourself as an object of the Father's wrath. And we are so thankful for that because we didn't deserve it. We've sung tonight of mercy and grace, mercy, that which we deserved that you did not give us, and grace, that which we did not deserve, but you did give us. And for that, we have this new standing and how privileged we are. So tonight, as we open your word, please open our hearts to understand what is being said. You've called us to make disciples. You've called us to, to share and to teach the entire counsel of Scripture, and we want to be faithful in doing that. We know, Father, that it's not just the jobs of, of a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary, but the entire body of Christ. Uh, you said that it's a mark of maturation in the faith that we are apt to teach and that we can help others. So help us to really digest these verses, these uh, most important subjects on baptism, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you're joining us for the first time, each week the handout gets a little bit longer. Uh, so um, if you're joining us, you can review it and be up to speed. And God willing, next week we'll actually finish this particular handout. Uh, on page two, we have gone through the seven objectives that we have for the course. And Roman numeral one, we focused on what is the meaning of baptism and how does it relate to the Great Commission. We studied the definition of the Greek word baptizo, basically meaning to immerse. Point B on the next page, we saw that baptism is important because it's part of the Great Commission. So if you are to be involved in the Great Commission, not only are you to invite people to Christ, but then when they receive the Lord Jesus, you should encourage them to be baptized. And then you can play a role in their life either directly, especially as you absorb the material uh, if you don't already know these things that's being taught in the basic discipleship course, this is like the bread and butter of what you want your children and teenagers and grandchildren and friends and neighbors that you introduce to the Savior to know. And so you introduce them to Christ. It's uh, make disciples, make converts. We saw that's an important uh, nuance in our day because maybe for the last 50 or 60 years, make disciples has been redefined in the average mind of the average Christian to do discipleship. And that's not what it is contextually. And it's real safe when we take that position because then we say, well, you know, I'm leading a Bible study or I'm trying to help some new Christian and that's worthy and that's important. But if we're not trying to share our faith and win the loss, then that's a major ingredient of the Great Commission. And we spoke on Sunday that there are many approaches that we can take. And even this conference coming up, ladies, uh, God may use you. You should really pray, God, who do you want me to give these five cards to? I have no doubt if someone really prayed that and got on their knees and asked God, that he would probably use you either that week or maybe this seed would be planted that would later be harvested to bring a lady into the kingdom of God. So you make disciples converts, you baptize them, and then the discipleship processes and teaching all that he taught us to observe. We asked and answered the question, does baptism have any part in salvation? We saw that baptism does not save or help save a person. On the next page, we uh, considered some illustrations of people who are saved apart from baptism. 
the immoral woman that uh, was at Christ's feet and worshipped him with her tears and expensive perfume. Uh, We saw in the parable of the two men who went to the temple to pray that one went home justified solely on the basis of grace through faith. We saw the same with the thief on the cross, for there the Philippian jailer. Then we uh, looked at the issue that baptism is separated from the plan of salvation. We saw in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God to save. Paul defines what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15, and in the same epistle, he separates baptism from the gospel. Then on Roman numeral three, we asked and answered the question, what verses do people use to teach that baptism saves? And while we did not hit on everyone, we hit on the major ones. There's two yet that we're going to hit on, and we'll address those when we come to next week. Uh, we looked at Acts 2.38. That's certainly one of the major verses. Repent, let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And we saw that for the most part, this is simply an issue in our English translation, but not in other translations around the world. But even in English, the word for the forgiveness of sins can carry a different nuance, not in order to be forgiven as some of the Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, Christian church denomination often use it, and those who practice pedio-baptism like Roman Catholics and others, uh, they use the same verse in a different way. Um, as a man is uh, rewarded for his bravery, not in order to be brave, but because he's brave. So you saw that, uh, that nuance, and we looked at one example where that word for is actually used by John the Baptist, uh, or in reference to John the Baptist, meaning because of. They repented because of the preaching of John the Baptist. Then we looked at Mark 16, 16. He who is believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. And we noted here under point one that had Jesus said, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved and not been baptized shall be condemned, then indeed baptism would be part of the plan of salvation. But that's not what the verse says. He's just giving a general appraisal here in one of five places where the Great Commission is given that if you truly know Christ, you will publicly confess him you'll publicly identify with him. And in the New Testament church, that was done through baptism. Then we looked at 1 Peter 3.21, where it says, baptism now saves you. And again, he gives us uh, the truth that this is an anti-type. A type is an Old Testament picture of the Lord Jesus. An anti-type is a mirror picture. So we discussed the type of Noah's Ark, picturing the triune God and the one way of salvation. And uh, there's obviously much more we could have said on that. I have a whole sermon just on that if you're interested. Um, But we saw that the antitype would be the mirror image. And so baptism is an antitype of Noah's Ark, which is a type of Christ. It's a mirror picture, and he makes it very clear that it's not the baptism, but the appeal to God for a good conscience. It's calling upon the name of the Lord to find freedom from, from the guilt and forgiveness of sin. We looked at Acts twenty two sixteen with the Apostle Paul. We saw, again, what it could not mean, that Paul was clearly saved uh, ever before he met Ananias. We know that from Galatians 1 which is uh, D14, uh, D13 on your handout. And uh, we also saw that he was already um, indwelt by the Spirit before he was baptized. So that brings us to where we are tonight. 
Who were the subjects of baptism in the Bible? Who were the subjects of baptism in the Bible? And we just cracked the door on this, so we will pick it up again with this overall paragraph that summarizes where we are headed. In the New Testament, the only people we ever find that are water baptized are those who have exercised faith in Christ. The Bible is clear that people are to be converted first and then be baptized. Many refer to this as credo-baptism. You know what credo is from a Latin means, I believe. And so we get our, our English word creed from the Latin. So I believe slash baptism. So credo-baptism, that's an important theological term you should know. It's not found in the Bible, but you will read it all the time in books and commentaries versus paleo-baptism. Pedio from pas means a child, and we'll talk a little bit more on that next week. Um, in either case, um, many refer to this as credo-baptism or post-conversion baptism or what we might call believer's baptism because the order is always first believe and then be baptized. We saw clearly under point A last time that Christ taught believer's baptism in the New Testament. First, disciples or converts are made and then they are baptized. In point three, where we left off, he also taught that his command and promise applied to the end of the age. So this truth, believe, be converted, and then be baptized, is in Mark, or in this text, uh, make a disciple, then baptize them. That is a truth that applies to the end of the age. And so we will see that people will make an argument uh, off of circumcision that this is something that you do just for the first generation of believers, and after that you do infants. But Jesus made it clear that this whole uh, promise and command is applicable until the end of the age. Um, so significantly, point four, when Christ told them to go to all the nations, he did not tell them to circumcise those who became disciples. Instead, they were to baptize them, suggesting a clear break with traditional Judaism and any Old Testament parallels to circumcision. Of course, that's what Acts 15 is all about, the Jerusalem Council, among other things. And if you've not studied the Jerusalem Council, you know, we hear about all these church councils in history, and most of them were bogus. They were done by our dear Roman Catholic friends to defend extra-biblical doctrines. But there were some councils that were definitely Christ-centered, but there's only one such council that's listed in all of Scripture, and that's the Jerusalem Council. And if you're not familiar with that, you might want to uh, listen to my series on Acts in the 15th chapter. Um, so instead, they were to baptize, suggesting a clear break. And then six, notice too that they were baptized into the name, not the names. We don't baptize in the names of the Father, in the name, because there's one God. Now, that brings us to point B. The early church always and only baptized new believers. New believers were baptized at Pentecost. Let's look at some passages in the book of Acts. So I hope you brought a Bible with you this evening. Go to Acts chapter 2 for just a moment. Pentecost, uh, 50 days, Penta, 50, 50 days after the resurrection, uh, by chance that he comes on Pentecost. This was the 50th day of one of the Old Testament feasts and four feasts. 
that were practiced in the spring, three every fall, four of the feasts were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, and one of those was the Feast of Weeks that was capstoned with Pentecost. Look at Acts 2. We've, we've examined verses 37 and 38. Peter preaches this incredible sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the hearts and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And again, Peter said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we saw what that word for the forgiveness of sin specifically meant and what it did not meant. For the promises to you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And so this was a promise not just for the Jews and their direct descendants, but even those of us who are far off, Gentiles. And of course, God taught through Isaiah the prophet that one of the roles of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. And so the gospel is for all nations. Remember, when God meets a Gentile, we don't think of guys like Adam and Noah as Gentiles. Well, Abraham was once a Gentile like us. And God started a new nation, the Jewish nation through him. But in the Abraham covenant, he speaks of, through Abraham's line, all of the nations, all of the peoples of the world would be blessed. So that's what Peter is just reiterating here. And he said, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then... Those who received his word were baptized, and on that day, three, uh, there were added about 3,000 souls. So they received his word. There's conversion. They believed, in other words. And then it was followed by baptism. So very, very, very clear. They received his word, then they were baptized. And we noted, I gave you a picture, I think, on the first week where we began to unfold this uh, concept of New Testament baptism, a picture of some mikvahs, which are kind of like big bathtubs, much like what we have up here that we baptize in. People say, well, it's more spiritual to get baptized in the ocean or in a river. Or, Well, those are wonderful uh, opportunities, but actually the very first Christians that had Christian baptism were baptized in things much like behind us. And so they have found 48 mikvahs right outside the temple where this sermon was preached there in the southern steps. So again, a clear picture. Point two, Philip baptized new converts in Samaria. Go over to Acts chapter 8, Acts the 8th chapter. Again, it be, when you, you just look at Scripture after Scripture, it becomes so clear. And we will ask and answer a lot of summary questions next week that you guys have sent to me and other people have asked me in the past. And so if you still have questions that you don't think I've answered yet after tonight, go to searchthescriptures.org, click on Ask Dr. Berge a question. You can submit it there. Or if you're online tonight, you can submit it, and I will do my best to answer it with those other questions next week. Look at Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So 8.1 is a hinge verse in the book of Acts, 1 through 7. Covers two years. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's 1 through 7. You'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. That's 8 through 13. Well, what scattered them? Persecution. 
the day uh, Stephen was martyred, they became bloodthirsty and started killing other Christians. And it created a scattering. And God, by the way, has often used the scattering through persecution to spread the gospel. Tertullian would later say, a few centuries later, that the blood of the saints is the, uh, excuse me, the, yeah, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I had a lady who prayed for me every single day for nearly 30 years until the Lord took her home. And she was in Southeast Asia in 1949 when Mao Zedong came in and her and a number of missionaries fled at machine gun fire. And she said, you know, we're disappointed on the one hand because here we were, she had already been there many years in China learning the language and they're introducing people to Christ. But she said, we saw the hand of God in it because he spread us across Southeast Asia as missionaries. And we ended up bringing the gospel to new places. That's kind of what's happening here. And so Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. He preached Christ, not prosperity, not healing. He preached Christ. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what uh, was said by Philip. And they heard and saw the signs and miracles which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. No wonder there was demons throughout this area. When you get involved in the occult, you open the door to demonism. Someone asked about that on the radio on Tuesday, two different callers. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is rather unusual, because most of the time... Um, the Holy Spirit is given at the point of conversion. And so by the time you get to the New Testament epistles, the moment a person believes they receive the Holy Spirit, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having believed, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you hear, you believe, you're sealed. And so Paul can say, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of his, by the time he writes Romans chapter 8. But on Pentecost, that was unique because the Spirit had not yet been given. So we understand that one. But this one's a little unusual and very different from Acts 10, where the moment they hear and believe, much like today, they immediately receive the Spirit. Why is the Holy Spirit given through the laying on of the apostles' hands? I have a whole message on it if you're interested. But very quickly, the fact is, is that Samaritans were, quote-unquote, half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. 
and somewhat of a despised people, and there was a potentiality for two churches and really a divided church. So when these Jewish leaders came down and laid hands, and there was a visible manifestation of the Spirit of God coming on them, it was clear affirmation that the Samaritans are on the same ground of blessing that we are as Jews. Of course, this fellow Simon, you know, he's got some crummy motives. Notice, um, it says they began laying their hands on them, verse 17, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And so we speak of simony, right, where people are engaged in ministry for money, saying that's where it comes from, from this man's name. Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you're still lost. You're in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Simon responds, notice, pray to the Lord for me yourself so that nothing of what you have said may come upon us. Now, the text said he had believed. But remember, every time you see the word believed, it's not always a reference to genuine conversion. When you see the word believed accompanied with the uh, preposition in or into or onto, depending on your English translation, it's always a reference to true faith. But remember, the demons believe and tremble. Jesus speaks in Luke 8, 13, of those who hear the word with joy, they believe for a while. But in time of temptation, they fall away. It's an intellectual belief but it's never reached the heart. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness, Paul will say. So this guy is an unbelieving believer, so to speak. And he was convincing enough where they baptized him, which is a reminder. But again, the order is here. They believe, and then these men and women alike are baptized. And then he goes under this discourse on Simon. And I think it's worth looking at for the simple reason that every church will sooner or later baptize an unbeliever. You can only go by what they say. And if it's one of the first acts of conversion, then you have to take them at their word. The Bible doesn't say, well, wait six months or six years or 15 years. There's some point, all things being weighed, and we'll talk about children being baptized next time, where someone has to take the step and baptize them. Now, there's exceptions to that. You know, people come and they're living together, they're unmarried, whatever, and, and we'll say to them, well, if your conversion is real, uh, let us know when you're either married or, you know, you're living under separate roofs because obviously we can't baptize you because if you're truly converted, you will do what is right and you will cease to live in this open sin. I said, I mean, it's, I said, think about it. If, if I were to baptize you living in this immoral relationship, not only would I be going against the tenor of Scripture, but two, if I were to obey another verse, the next week I'd put you under church discipline. So there's a reason for it. Christ receives sinful people, but people still have to deal with their sin. And Simon obviously did not. 
And it's an interesting episode because it reminds us how close someone can be to conversion without really being conversion, where someone can make a profession of faith, as Simon did, and be one of Satan's counterfeits. But again, the order is clear. Look at the next one. Go to Acts 9, and this is the conversion story, of course, of the Apostle Paul. I say story, historical record. You know what I mean by that. Uh, So Ananias departed, 917, and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized. Now, the whole filling of the Spirit here is a interesting subject in itself, because this is not the same word that's used in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled plerao with the Spirit. It's a different word, and it's a word that's used here and in Acts 4 and other places where of a saved person, there's a new work of the Spirit to propel them into a new act. So I, I give you an example, I suppose. Go back to Acts 4. Acts 4, there are They've been out preaching the gospel. On this occasion, uh, Acts 4.4 says the number of men who were saved came to be 5,000, so we're excluding women and children. So conservatively speaking, most Bible scholars would say at least 20,000 folks got saved on this day. And of course, this was very upsetting, so they're under threat beginning in verse 13. And so they um, go into this prayer meeting, and we're told these men who are described earlier in the chapter as being filled with the Spirit, now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, The place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they are all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, wait a minute. I thought they were already filled with the Spirit, as the earlier section of the chapter did. No, they're filled with the Spirit again and in a new way, and it's not the typical word. It's the word that's used for a special task or a special accomplishment. And many times you're filled with the Spirit, and you're walking with God as much as you know, but then you're in some given situation. You say, Lord, I need your help. you got to meet me here. And of course, these people, their lives were being threatened. And they said, Lord, we need your help. And God helped them and because it was frightful. And when someone's threatening your life, you know, we can all talk about martyrdom, but when someone's got, you know, the sword and, and they're going to, in a short time, execute James with the sword, then it's a different story. And so they needed boldness. And so the same here... He's already converted, but he is filled with the Spirit. Again, this different word that's used because God wants to accomplish something. One, he wants to take the blinders off his eyes so he can see again. He had blinders on his eyes, some kind of scales. What do you do when you can't see? Well, you think, don't you? You think. And he had been thinking a whole lot. Because it's not like he could be, you know, running here and there and doing everything. But the point is, is that the Holy Spirit was already in him, now filling him in a new way before he was baptized. 
And so regeneration had taken place, and this is what we pointed out last week from Acts 22, if you were here. That's important because, again, there are these groups, and people get mad at me sometimes, but listen, um, to teach that baptism saves is to preach a different gospel, and it is to lead men into eternal condemnation, and it is no different than the Galatian era. Okay, notice... um, Peter, we'll just note it here, we'll come to it later. Peter baptized Cornelius, or Cornelius, if you prefer, at conversion, Acts 10. So he believes, then he's baptized. Same with Lydia and her household. They believe, then they're baptized. Seven, the Philippian jailer and his household all believed and were baptized. And Crispus and his household, along with other Corinthians, were baptized again after they believed. We'll look at a few of those. All the examples in the New Testament indicate the believers were baptized right after they believed. Now, again, there are some who argue, um, usually in certain independent Baptist realms, not all independent Baptists, I think it's changed a lot, um, but there are segments of independent Baptists who argue for immediate baptism. And so they would say, if someone tonight came to Christ, we should baptize you before you leave the building. And again, I think while you see examples like that in the New Testament, um, we live in a different time. We live in a different age where people today don't know anything about baptism. And that was not true in the first century. They understood the meaning of baptism and what they were doing. And yes, even the risk that it could bring to their own skin if they made that decision. So then we're asking, Roman numeral five, were infants ever baptized in the Bible? Were infants? So again, here's a summary paragraph. Let's read it. There is not a single verse in the entire New Testament that teaches it, it teaches infant baptism or even suggests that local churches should baptize infants. The first possible record of infant baptism dates to around 197 AD. And I say first possible because people debate whether that recorded event is actually infant baptism. But let's just say for the sake of argument, it is. We know that this practice does not become a widespread practice until the late 5th century. So you're basically talking about 475 AD where infant baptism kicks into high gear. A major motivation in the early centuries for infant infant baptism was the high infant mortality rate. The average Christian could not search the scriptures as we can today because it was in the language of the scholar. What language? Latin. It was in Latin. So the number one translation for the body of Christ, if anyone ever asks you, what's the most translated Bible in the world? It's Latin. The Latin Bible was used almost exclusively for a thousand years of church history. And so we have all these Latin terms, like the five solas that are on the window behind us and the one here on the front of this pulpit. Tons and tons of terms that come from Latin, like even rapture from the Latin Bible. With that said, a lot of people, because Latin became a dead language, and so now you're dependent on the scholar to read Uh, the scripture for you and to explain it. And so with that, there were some, I think, you know, false practices that developed. And so the average Christian could not search the scriptures as we can today because it was in the language of the scholar. Of course, some still read Greek and Hebrew, but remember when they, like, like even Jerome in the, you know, in the fourth century, 
he translates the Bible um, into Latin. And of course, even that fellow who was a scholar, and he did it in a cave in Bethlehem. Some of you have been with me to Bethlehem, and we love to go to the cave of Jerome when we can get in there. Unfortunately, it's often an occupied site, and you can't get in there. But next to the, uh, the church that you know is supposed to be the place where Jesus is born, and I think you can give good evidence for it, though the way they've manipulated the site, it's not that great to go see. But what is really magnificent is to go 25 yards next door to the very cave that this man, Jerome, lived in for 35 years. And it was in Bethlehem that he learned Hebrew from the Jewish scholars so that he could translate the Bible into Latin. And he did a great job. Of course, Latin has its limitations, much like English does. But by the time you come to the Protestant Reformation, few people knew Greek or Hebrew. And they didn't want to do a secondary translation from Latin, say, into German or English or whatever language you're going with. They wanted to do a primary translation. And that was the challenge even in the King James. Um, And they put in the initial preface in 1611 that we're uncertain on the translation of several words, dozens of words, because they were still learning the language. In fact, six months later, we speak of the 1611. There's actually the 1611, and then there's the 1611b. So as soon as they published the first, they went back, studied more, came out six months later with another translation. Then again in 1613, and five translations represent the 1789 version of what we call the Old King James. And then, of course, more recently, the the New King James. So the average Christian couldn't read it, and so Paul's admonition in 1 Timothy 4, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. Why was that so critical? Because someone had to read the Scriptures for you. Not to mention, not only could people not typically read the language, many were illiterate, but most didn't have their own personal copies of the Word of God. And we're blessed beyond measure. We're blessed beyond Christians of 200 years ago in terms of our access to scriptures and Bible helps and so on. The Bible is very clear, as we will address later in this course, that little children who die before being able to believe go home to be with the Lord. That's one of the 10 most commonly asked questions. So some argue for infant baptism. Again, pedo-baptism, pace means child. Now, we typically say pedo-baptism is infant baptism. But I need to tell you that Some people expanded beyond that. They say, well, we're not only talking about infant baptism, but child baptism. So I have a friend who I've known for 40-some years, and he pastors one of the larger churches, probably the largest sound evangelical church in the D.C. area, and he won't baptize anyone until they're 18 years old. Now, that's something we'll discuss a little bit next week. Uh, But, you know, in some churches, they're baptizing kids three and four. Is that pedo-baptism? I think you could make a case for it. So, you know, where do you cut it off? But traditionally, when we say pedo-baptism, we're talking about little infants, usually shortly within weeks or months after they're born. Protestants who practice infant baptism reason that just like infants in the nation Israel were circumcised and brought into the believing community, 
So infant baptism is the counterpart of circumcision, bringing infants into the Christian community. They reason that as the first generation of men circumcised were adults, and after these infants, Genesis 17, and by the way, uh, Paul makes a huge point in Romans 4 that Abraham was saved ever before he was circumcised. And again, that's important because you have people who try to make these parallels, and we'll see some who say that there's a salvific effect when an infant is baptized. But to establish from this Jewish rite a pattern for infant baptism is fraught with many problems. First, baptism is the initiatory symbol into a believing community. I'm underscoring, I put it in a different color, symbol. Whereas circumcision brought men and infants into a theocracy, namely the nation of Israel, which had both believers and unbelievers in it. So you could be circumcised and be an unbeliever. And of course, even amongst the Jews that left Egypt, there was a mixed multitude. And obviously, Paul makes it clear at the end of Romans 2 that not everyone who you know, has had the outward right has had circumcision of the heart. They're not true believers. Second, circumcision was obviously for male infants and for adult men. And, you know, by adult men, not just the first generation, but proselytes. So, you know, Jesus in the uh, Matthew 23, that great sermon in his final weeks, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And he talks about how some of these Jewish men would, you know, break their backs to make a proselyte. What's a proselyte? It's a Gentile who has taken circumcision to say, I'm following the God of Israel. Versus there are some Gentiles who didn't take on that right, and they're called God-fearers in the New Testament, like in Acts 10 with Cornelius. The point is, is that um, the, the parallel is not the same. Again, so you've got um, obviously for male infants and for adult men, whereas baptism is for both sexes alike. Third, circumcision was a sign for the nation of Israel only, whereas baptism is for all nations and peoples who have trusted in Jesus Christ. To justify infant baptism on the basis of the old covenant practice of infant circumcision is to confuse the truth that Israel and the church fulfilled different purposes in their respective purposes. Let's think about that. You know, Israel brought the Messiah. The church spread the fact that Messiah has come. Israel was a Jewish community. The church is an international community made up of a multiplicity of nations. Fourth, the equation between the circumcision of male infants under the old covenant and the baptism of born-again believers under the new covenant, much less of infants, is never made in the Bible. In other words, God nowhere in the Scripture draws a parallel. Okay, adult men, Abraham, after that, infants on the eighth day. Oh, same with baptism, believing adults, so to speak, and after that, their children as infants. God doesn't make that parallel. He does in the Old Testament Scriptures. Clearly, point eight, after God had the first generation of Jewish men circumcised, He specifically commanded them to circumcise their infant um, boys on the eighth day, but he gave no such command for baptism. All right, so um, now I'm talking in this section 
about how evangelical Bible-believing Christians are reasoning infant baptism. I'm not dealing right now with, say, a Roman Catholic's view of baptism, or for that matter, even Martin Luther's view of infant baptism. But we're dealing with, you know, how do, say, our Presbyterian brothers, who you'll meet in heaven if they're born again, and millions of them are, how do they get to infant baptism from the Scriptures? And this is the rationale that is used. All right? Let's keep following their argument. Some argue for infant baptism based on the household baptisms. So from the four household baptisms in the book of Acts, and I've listed the four there, Acts 10, Acts 16, 2 in chapter 16, first Lydia, then the Philippian jailer in his house, and then Acts 18. In one passage in 1 Corinthians 1, it is presumed by some that infants must have been baptized in each of these homes, thus legitimizing infant baptism. The problem with this position is that inferences should not be taken as dogmas when there are other clear passages that instruct us that faith must first precede baptism. So in the Great Commission that applies to the end of the age, make converts, disciples, then baptize them, then teach them. So the order is not obscure. It is very, very clear. We didn't look at it, but look at Acts 8 for a moment. Go back to Acts chapter 8. It was listed there amongst examples, but I skipped over it because I was coming here to Acts 8. And of course, there's a big revival going on in Samaria, and all these Samaritans are coming to faith in the Lord. And it's amazing. Uh, in verse 25 of chapter 8, so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem, were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And it's a really, I mean, desert road. If you've seen pictures of the Judean wilderness, that's what this is like. I mean, it's just dirt and rock and, you know, and occasionally, unless there's an oasis, nothing grows out there except for that brief rainy season where it's green for just a matter of weeks and then it's all dead again. So he got up and went. Now think about it. Here is this guy. And all these Samaritans are coming to Christ, and they're going village to village, and all these Samaritans are being converted. But God's going to take Philip, who is later in Acts 21 called what? Philip the Evangelist. And he's going to have him go share the gospel with one fella. So remember, God sees the masses, but he sees the individual. He died for all of us, but the Scripture also affirms he died for each one of us. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. So here's Philip. He's over here in Jerusalem. Here's Philip in Samaria. An angel of the Lord says, Philip, I got a project for you. And he didn't say, well, let me pray about this. He, he, it was a clear word from God. Some things you don't need to pray about. You need to pray as you go, but you don't need to pray whether you're going to go. You just go because God said to do it. And in the providence of God, their pathways cross. Now, had he waited or delayed, 
Totally would have missed this guy. Nonetheless, he was returning, the eunuch, sitting in his chair, reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, remember, he's a court official. He's obviously wealthy because not only by his position, but by the fact that he has purchased a scroll of Isaiah. He has his own personal scroll. Why would he want Isaiah of all the prophets? No doubt because Isaiah among the prophets talks about eunuchs and how God will someday bless them. And so he probably wanted to read about that. So the spirit said to Philip, go up and join the chariot, this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? He said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And that's generally the case. I'm not saying that someone couldn't pick up a Gideon's Bible in a hotel and be converted. It happens, but it's rare. Most of the time, what God uses, and by the way, I love the Gideons. This church supports the Gideons. Uh, We send them money every year for them to put Bibles out, even in our local hotels. But usually the people who benefit from the Gideon Bibles more than anything else are believers who are in the hotel room, and they're looking for a Bible maybe because they forgot theirs. And by the way, I always take my free Mormon Bible. Yes, sir, I take my free Mormon Bible. You know what I do with it? (laughs) Yes, sir, you guessed it. But take uh, the Gideon's Bible if you need it, but leave it there. And maybe leave a tract inside of it. That's what I always do. I always leave, would you like to know God as your friend in any hotel I'm in? And I leave that in the Gideon's Bible. So if someone picks it up, they have a commentary. And that's really what that booklet is. It's doing what Philip did here for this particular man. He was explaining the scripture. That's how God typically brings people into the kingdom. A real live flesh and blood human agent comes alongside and explains it to him. How could I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth, and humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate to his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. So he gives us a, a sampling of the passage. And of course, you see it's in bold, uh, not bold, but uh, large print, and you see it comes from Isaiah 53. So you talk about providence. You talk about timing. I mean, this is a big scroll, and he happens to be right in that section of the scroll. There are four servant passages in the book of Isaiah. And this is a servant passage that describes the death, burial, and the resurrection of Messiah, like an eyewitness 700 years before Messiah ever leaves heaven and comes to earth in Bethlehem. And it gives all these detailed prophecies surrounding what will happen. It's it's an astounding prophecy. And many a Jew has been converted by studying Isaiah 53. Now, most Jews today don't even read Isaiah. In fact, most rabbis will forbid you and discourage you from reading Isaiah 53, and you can read all about that. In fact, most Jews only read the first five books of the Bible, the law. And so when I interface with Jews and, and ask them, maybe apart from the Psalms, about it, they have no idea what you're talking about. So many times if you're doing Jewish evangelism, 
this would be a good passage to know, but it would also be helpful to know how you could share the plan of salvation from just the first five books of the Bible. The eunuch answered Philip, verse 34, and said, please tell me of whom does the prophets say this? Of himself or someone else? Is, is, is Isaiah speaking about himself or someone else? So Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He said, it's all about Jesus. You know, my wife and I served at Duke University for five years. The campus was 25% Jewish. And in the five years we were there, we saw a handful of Jewish students trust Christ as their Messiah, and some who went into full-time Christian work. It's really exciting to see how God worked. But for two of them in particular that I think of, they, I couldn't open the New Testament. They weren't interested in the New Testament. You open my scripture and tell me about your Jesus from there. And if there's one passage you should know probably well from the Old Testament in Jewish evangelism, it would be Isaiah 53. So Philip opened his mouth and he preached Jesus. As they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Yes, verse 37 is included in the body of the text. It should be. The New American Standard puts it in brackets to let you know that there are some manuscripts that they found that it was not contained in, but they put it in the brackets because they believe it should flow and should be a part here. I don't like the, some of the new translations that you, it just goes from verse 36 to verse 38 or it's in the margin or the bottom of the page. It's part of the text. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he's preaching that Jesus is Messiah and all that that means from Isaiah 53. He said, I believe it. Now, had Peter, I mean, had Philip led him in a prayer? No. He just believed. I've had people in my office over the years, and I've asked them the diagnostic questions, and clearly they don't know Christ. And I come to the end of the booklet, and I'll say, well, you know, in this diagram, where do you think you are? And they'll, they'll identify themselves as a Christian. Well, why, why would you put yourself over here in light of the fact that you said you thought you get into heaven by being good? He said, because as I've been listening to you, I get it now. I believe it. Never even led him in a prayer. But you see, in their heart, they cried out to the Lord. With a heart, man believes. In, that's what Philip is doing here. With his heart, he is believing in the Lord. I believe with all my heart. So again, baptism is conditional. What prevents me from being baptized? And so he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. He didn't go to the edge of the water, and we'll talk a little bit about this next time on the modes of baptism that the church has used in 2,000 years. Oh, let me get a cup and just throw it on you. And he went down into the water, and then he baptized him. So again, the order is very clear. And then it's kind of cool here, verse 39, a little Star Trek verse, I guess, maybe. And they came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and he was gone. You know, that's real travel. Bingo, you know. Who knows where the Lord brought him? But, you know, we'll be able to travel someday in our resurrected body in ways that we can't even conceive now. Okay, so... Um, Back to our handout here. Do you remember where we were? What number? 
Three. B3? Yes. If faith is a prerequisite to baptism, since an unaccountable infant is unable to understand the gospel and thus unable to exercise true faith in Christ, they should therefore not be baptized. But again, and we 21 handouts in this course. One of the questions we ask and answer concerns little children and what drove infant baptism in the earliest times of the church is not what drove it when Roman Catholicism took it over, and it's not what drove it when uh, the Protestant, re, uh, Protestant reformers redefined it. What drove it in the early centuries is recorded by ancient historians were the high infant mortality rate. Well, man, if I thought my little baby and there's a 50-50 chance, no antibiotics, disease, and everything, we might never make it to three or four, let's get them covered. And so it was a false practice based on a false precept. And therefore, it was really unnecessary. While the age of children is never mentioned in any of the so-called household baptisms, we do learn that with Cornelius' house, the jailer's house, and Crispus' house, that all the households heard and believed the gospel. Let's go back to Acts 10 here for a second. You're still there, Acts 10. And look, for example, at verse, this is, um, you know, Cornelius and his crowd, and God providentially brought the two together. If you've not read that, read Acts 10. And he brought them together, and while Peter was still speaking these words, the plan of salvation... The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. How did he do that? How did the Holy Spirit come to live inside of these people? Because Peter's preaching the gospel, and what do they do? They believe. He didn't pause, hold on, let me, let's pray the sinner's prayer. No, I'm not against that. We are to entreat men to be reconciled to Christ. But at this point, he's just preaching the plan of salvation. And the people listening... Believe, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. How do we know? And of course, verse 45, all the circumcised believers, that's his six Jewish friends, who came with Peter were blown away, (laughs) amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How do we know? For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And so... You know, today when the Holy Spirit comes in a person, do you, do you see him? Oh, yeah, there he is. No, he just comes in. But in the early church on Pentecost, he came in with an outward manifestation. They spoke in glossolalia, glossolalia not only a, a language, but a dialect within the language. And so if I knew English, I might speak Chinese, but not just Chinese, but Mandarin Chinese. That's a miracle. What we're seeing today in the current Pentecostal movement that didn't really come back until about 1900 has nothing to do with what you see in Scripture. And it's no different from what the Hindus do, who speak in tongues, who are slain in the Spirit, who laugh outrageously, who bark like dogs. It's not from the Lord. But this was, and why did God allow this outward manifestation with these Gentiles? An obvious reason. And he explains it in the 11th chapter. Because when he goes back and he reports 
to the elders in the Jerusalem church, they are blown away. Not that a Gentile could become a Christian, a believer in Jesus, though they're not yet called Christians until later on in Acts 11. Not that a a Gentile could become a follower of the way, but that a Gentile could be on the same ground and level of blessing that a Jew could. Of course, that's the nature of the church. God's removed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And so he says, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? So what is the order? Regeneration, dwelt by the Spirit, then baptized. So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Look at another case of a household baptism, Acts chapter 16. Go to Acts chapter 16. And let's look at verse uh, 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together. This is the Philippian jailer, remember? The guy who was involved in imprisoning them, and they were beaten and singing songs, and God brought a, a controlled earthquake. The ceilings didn't cave in. The walls didn't fall down. Only the doors opened and the chains came undone. Only God could pull off that kind of earthquake. And so they walk out. They're free. I mean, the jailer's ready to fall on his sword. Don't do it. He, he comes to their house and that very hour of the night washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed with God with his whole household. Same pattern. Just like with Cornelius, now with the Philippian jailer, everyone present believed. Look at uh, Acts 18, uh, just over a page in my Bible. Crispus, Paul's in Corinth. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord Alone? No. With all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Again, the order is so clear. It is so clear. So, look at point five on your handout. If there were any children present, then they were of an age that they could hear and comprehend such that they could believe. They could hear with comprehension such that they could believe. Were there any children present? We don't know. But we do know that in three of these household baptisms, it says that everyone in the house believed. So however old the children were, they were old enough to hear with comprehension and then to believe, and as a result, they were baptized. To assume from Stephanus and Lydia's household, those are two other household baptisms, we didn't read uh, those, but since we're in Acts, just turn back to Acts 16, um, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So there's a response in her heart. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here's the point. To assume that Stephanus, similar situation, 1 Corinthians 1, and Lydia, so these are all five household baptisms that are found in the Bible, that there must have been infants that were baptized because these passages do not specifically indicate that every single person in the house believed 
is not to exercise sound hermeneutics. When you read into the text something that is not explicitly said in the text, that's what we call eisegesis. And pastors do it every week all over America, and I cringe sometimes. It's just lazy. It's entertaining. You can make the Bible say all kinds of things. We are to exegete, read out what the Scripture has said. We're not to read into the Scripture. And if there's an inference, we need to call it as an inference. We need to classify it as such. But to take this holistic view of Scripture, believe and then be baptized, and now we've got these household passages. Oh, and let's go ahead and we'll take circumcision And we'll parallel it to baptism, and we'll make this case for infant baptism is really a distortion. That's why when you go to countries, especially where there's no formal seminaries, and the church is bound by their own internal teaching, and they haven't had all these documents and outside writers, and they just read the simple, plain reading of Scripture— they will ask me, how on earth do people see infants in the Bible? And they're not making fun or laughing. They're just like, how can you come up with this? It's so clear. How can you come up and say that Jesus didn't die for the whole world, but just a certain group of people? How can you come up with that? You have to be educated into that. But it doesn't come from the simple, plain reading of Scripture. Now, our Father, we... Thank you that in the commission that your son gave us, he was clear that as we go, we are to make converts. So help us even this week that as we're moving around town and in our neighborhoods and our places of work, that as we rub shoulders with the lost, that we'd be sensitive to open doors that you would give us to reach out. We We pray for the women of our church and the men as well who can reach out to women likewise for this coming event in just a few weeks. We know unless you build a house, we labor in vain who build it. So we pray that the Spirit of God would meet the ladies here in an extraordinary way, that His presence would be deeply felt, that unbelievers would come and And because of their exposure to truth, like Paul said, they would fall on their face and want to worship the living God. We pray for the women that come as believers, that their hearts would be renewed further to walk with Christ and to be used by Him. We thank you for your answered prayer, for the food drive and all the donations that have been made and continue to come in and And we pray for those who faithfully each week work with these families, some 800 last month, Father, that there would be opportunity for the gospel. We know some come with no intent of ever wanting to receive Christ. But our love, we know, is not to be conditional. But we do thank you for those who have found Christ through this ministry, and we pray that you would bring many more. We think of our government and the upside-down values that we have. And we know that our hope is not in one party over another. But we ask, our Father, that your hand would be over this election, that you would give us a party that would protect life in the womb, a party that would 
recognize the role that government has to exercise the sword to protect its citizens. A party that would bless Israel, for you said the nation that would bless Israel, you would bless. Our sins are gross. They have stacked up into the heavens. And we know even now we are under your current wrath. But we ask for your mercy. We pray for our president who is just day after day opposed and hated like none I've ever seen. We pray you give him strength. We thank you for the vice president who's born again and five members of his cabinet that are born again. We thank you for the federal judges that have been chosen, a record number through our president who do espouse to values and laws that reflect a biblical position. We pray that their, their tribe would grow. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.